0: Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Tonight, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn to 1 Samuel, if you will please, 1 Samuel chapter three, I want to begin reading there, and I'm just going to read a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture, the first 10 verses of one Samuel chapter three. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. Let me pause a minute. Precious, what does it mean? A diamond is precious because it's rare. So precious doesn't just mean it's valued, it, mean, it, it means it was rare. And there was no open vision. It means God's revelation power seemed to have lifted from the generation. Verse two. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was and Samuel, who was a little boy, a little child, was laid down to sleep. That the Lord called Samuel and Samuel answered, here am I. And Samuel ran unto Eli and said, here am I, for thou callest me. And Eli said, I called thee not. Lie down again. And Samuel went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for thou didst call me. And Eli answered and said, I call not, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Let's pause just a moment. It doesn't mean he doesn't know who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He doesn't mean that he doesn't has never heard of God. He has been handed over to Eli at the temple to be raised. He is not an orphan. His mother has made an arrangement with God. And as a result of that arrangement, she has turned her son over to be raised by Eli at the temple. So he certainly knows who God is. It means that his prophetic relationship with God has not yet been revealed to him. Verse seven, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I shall perform against Eli all the things which I've spoken concerning his house. And when I begin, I will also make an end. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray. Lord, with our hands upon the word and our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking you to do all the rest. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm I'm learning a little more about photoshopping. I didn't know about photoshopping. So uh, I've learned about it, something about it. I'm going to show you a series of pictures here. You'll see the original and then you'll see what somebody cleverly has done. So here's the first picture. Let's look up there. Now look what they did to it. There he is right there in the mountains. Isn't that exciting? Here's another one. Isn't she lovely? Now watch. There she is in a field of carnations. Here's another one. Beautiful. Here's another one. I like this one the best. And yet again. Isn't he exciting? There he is. Now he's playing. Is a good one. Now I like this next one. This is my favorite. (laughs) The point is that there is a difference between reality and perception. There's there's this current phrase that's going around. I I think it's a product of 21st century thought. And it says reality, perception becomes reality. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Perception is just perception. Here's another phrase that's much older than that one. A picture is worth a thousand words. Or here's another one. A camera never lies. I have just proven to you a camera is a nifty liar. (laughs) And perception is not necessarily reality. I want to talk to you tonight about four levels of truth versus perception. Here here is this little boy who is being raised in the temple by Eli, this elderly priest. His sons Eli's sons, Phinehas and Hophni, are fallen priests. They are wicked, they are corrupt, and God is the the word of God seems to have retreated from Israel. There's no sense of prophetic leadership. There's no sense of the word of God. And there is no sense of a vision of the purpose of the people of Israel. It just seems like God has withdrawn from the generation. But who is in perception in leadership? This old man, Eli, and his two corrupt sons. They are the outward and apparent reality. But God is speaking to this child. This innocent little boy, Samuel, Samuel, yes, Lord, speak, thy servant heareth. Listen to this. The true call of God is not positional, it's personal. You can be in a position that appears by perception that it is a position of great spiritual authority, but it is just a Photoshop unless God himself has called you into that place of service, which is under his own anointing. It's not positional. It's personal. Furthermore, it's not positional. It's powerful. Look what God says to this little boy. I'm about to do something. It's going to make the ears of everybody that hears of it tingle. I am going to do something that will that will be an explosive story. It's going to be powerful. I'm going to begin with the household of Eli, and I'm going to deal with all of Israel, and I'm revealing it to you, a small child. Isn't it an interesting thing that this little boy, who is not apparently a position of power, he is not apparently in any position of leadership or ministry or service, he just is asleep in the temple because that's where he's being raised. That this little boy, God bypasses this old priest, God bypasses Phinehas, God bypasses Hophni, and comes to this little boy. Many, many years later, when that little boy is grown and is now known as the prophet Samuel, he goes to Bethlehem, where he's to anoint the new king of Israel, and he bypasses the seven sons of Jesse and lands on the eighth, who is a small boy, David. It's interesting, isn't it? God is saying to us, I don't see this the way you do. Perception, your perception is not God's reality. Why does God why does God speak to Samuel? Why this little boy? I tried to study this passage and see if I could pick up some on some insights. I mean, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He could just choose anybody. But why does he choose who he chooses? Why the Virgin Mary? Why not any other? teenage girl in her generation. Why her? And why Samuel? It could be simply because of the the rule of proximity. He's in the temple. No, that won't work because Eli is also in the temple. Phineas is also in the temple. Hophni is also in the temple. Here are the things I've picked up on. First of all, Samuel is sensitive. He can hear the word of God, the voice of God that nobody else can hear. God is looking for sensitive spirits, those who live amidst all of the hubbub of life, the veritable cacophony of sounds that are demanding our attention, that can hear that still small voice, that God doesn't have to shout to us, that he can just say your name and you hear it. He's looking for the sensitive. Secondly, he's looking for the submitted. He goes directly to Eli and he says, you call me? what do you want? Can I serve you? He thinks it's Eli's voice. So he has submitted. He's got a servant spirit. Of course it isn't Eli and it takes Eli. Well, if he had been more sensitive, why does it take the chief priest three times to figure out it's God? So finally he says, it's not me that's calling you, but this is an insistent voice in the night. So he says the next time say, speak Lord, your servant hears. And when the next time God speaks, Samuel, Samuel, that's exactly what he says. In other words, this little boy is not only sensitive, he is submitted, he is also obedient. The apparent priests are insensitive, rebellious, and disobedient. The apparent priests have no authority spiritually. It is this child, because of his sensitive, obedient, submitted, yieldedness, to God Almighty. A small boy with no title, no job, no portfolio, no ordination, but he can hear the voice of God and he is yielded and obedient. This is true of every generation throughout scripture. Moses its an unlikely choice. Not a small boy, but an 80-year-old man. Trust me, that's older than you think. <laughs> He's an 80-year-old man on the backside of the desert, living amidst the sand dunes. He's got a price on his head in Egypt. He's already committed manslaughter. He's he's an, an escaped felon of failure living on the backside of the desert. And what is the first thing that God says to him? Moses, take off thy shoes. The ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. Why Moses? Why indeed David? Why this little boy in the village of Bethlehem? How interesting that this little boy, Samuel, grows up and finds that little boy, David. What about Jesus himself? What about Jesus himself? Born in Bethlehem, in a manger, to a poor family, in an occupied country. Why, why that little guy? Do you see that is no apparent glory? Of course, the angels were there, but they disappeared. Of course, the wise men came with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but they, they left. But there's nothing about them. This is, this is what's impo- important. The supernatural power of God active in an individual life doesn't depend on some Photoshop perception of reality. God doesn't have to tidy it up. He uses those who are sensitive, yielded, and obedient no matter where they are buried in the sea of humanity. God knows right where you are tonight. And he has a call on your life. So first of all, there's the true call. Then there there is the true source. This This is a fascinating thing. In the passage that we just read, Samuel kind of seems to disappear from the story for a while. Then the Philistines attack. It's a, it's a horrible story. This is the thing God says, I'm going to bring this judgment on the household. The, the Philistines attack the army of Israel. It looks like they're losing. So Phineas and Hophni come up with the bright idea. I know what let's do. Let's carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They're not, they are not operating in the supernatural power of God. They want to use the supernatural power of God. So they carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle. I love the reaction. The Philistines hear the cheering and in the, on the Israeli side, and at first they're shaken. And then some Philistine general says, wait a minute. They're just cheering. They're just cheering. They, they haven't got anything. They're just cheering. And the Philistines swoop down on them. They kill the Israelis. They wipe out the army. They capture the Ark of the Covenant. Phineas and Hophni are killed. A guy runs back to the, to the temple. And Eli sitting there, uh, it describes him this way. He's quite old and fat. <laughs> And they run back, and he says, "What? What's happened? What's happened?" And he says, "The army has been destroyed. Everybody has fled. The ark of the covenant has been captured, and both of your sons are killed." And Eli topples backward, his weight off of that bench, and snaps his neck, and he dies. Phineas's widow, who is pregnant, goes into labor prematurely and gives birth to a baby, and she names it the beautiful name in Hebrew, Achavod. There is no glory. Ichabod. That's a lovely name for a baby, isn't it? But I suppose a baby that's been born when your husband has just been killed, your brother-in-law has been killed, your father-in-law has been killed, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, the army of Israel is destroyed. I think maybe the glory has departed might be the right name for that baby. There are whole generations that are called Ichabod. The glory has just departed, except for one thing, Samuel is still there. He has seemed to sort of submerge to go down. And then right here at the right moment, God lifts Samuel up. It's like God brings Samuel in at just the moment. Again, this is a constant theme. Not only does he find Moses in the back of the wilderness, he finds him at exactly the right moment, 40 years after he commits manslaughter. Jesus, it says, Jesus came in the fullness of time. In other words, God's perfect timing. David is anointed by Samuel as the king, but it is some 27 years before there's anything in his life that looks like kingship. In other words, if God's true call is upon your life, now wait for God's true source to provide the timing. God has a perfect timing for you. The army had failed. The priesthood had failed. The temple had failed. Religion had failed. But God has not failed. There are things that we need to do. We have to work. We have to prepare. The horse is prepared for battle. But victory is the Lord's. A king looks like a visible source of strength. So all of this happens. Samuel is now lifted up. Samuel becomes the the prophet. Samuel becomes, is called the prophet of Israel. People look to him. They obey him. He he serves almost also as a prophet and also a judge. But then finally the people come to him and they say, look, you're getting old. And here is an ironic twist. Samuel's sons were just as bad as Eli's. And they said, your sons are corrupt. You're old. We want a king. Now this is very, very important. Samuel is hurt. He's wounded. He feels rejected. He's old. He feels cast aside. He doesn't, he's hurt. And God says, do what they want. Go ahead and do what they want. Give them a king because they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. In what sense have they rejected God? It's not like they said we don't believe in God or there is no God or we're turning back to paganism or we're turning to Baal and Ashtaroth. In what sense have they rejected God? It is that they have wanted an apparent king. They want a photoshopped king. They want a king that looks like all the kings of all the other nations. So Samuel says, we have a king. We have a heavenly king. We have God. God is our king. And they give that kind of patience. Oh, well, yes, yes, yes. I mean, sure, we all believe in God. We all believe in God, but what we want is a king. Now, this is very, very important. Not only is there a true call, there is a true source. God says, I am your source. Look, I believe Christians ought to be involved in government. I believe that God wants to give us favor in government. I believe that good Christian people ought to run for office, I love the United States. I'm a patriot. I'm a weepy patriot. I, I burst into tears if the Boy Scouts march through the room. I love the nation. I love all that. But listen to me. In the final analysis, our hope and our confidence is not in any earthly government. It is in a heavenly king. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. The government shall be upon his shoulders. When, when we put our hope and confidence for security and safety in that which is apparent, we may lose confidence in that which is our true source. Saul was big and strong. They wanted a king. They wanted a guy that looked like a king. He was a head and shoulders taller than everybody else in the nation. They said, now that's, that's a king. That's a big guy. That's what we want. But David, whom God anointed following the fall of Saul, was just a little guy. You see how God is constantly setting up this tension between what's apparent and what is actually real. The the fall of Saul is the same story. Samuel anoints Saul as king. Saul is lifted up. He's exalted. He begins to have some victories. He begins to defeat his enemies. And it looks apparent that he's the guy. He's the king. He's what we wanted. Everybody says to Samuel, thank you. This this is just the guy we wanted. But then Saul lives in, in a terrible state of carnal disobedience to God. God says, attack these Amalekites and wipe them out. It's a hard command for us to hear wipe them out. Don't save any. Wipe them out. Even kill all the livestock. Kill them all. The people, the livestock, everything. And Samuel comes and after the battle, and he says to Saul, did you, did you kill all the livestock? And he says, yes, I sure did. Kill them all. And Samuel says, well, I hear sheep. He said, well, okay, we did keep some of the sheep. And he so said, why? He said, we were going to sacrifice the sheep to the Lord. And he says, you know, that's a funny thing. I hear like cows. He said, oh, okay, okay. Now, we did keep some of the cows too. It's like a Monty Python skit. <laughs> and Samuel says to Saul, what would you keep all these animals for? Sacrifice. And Samuel says, God doesn't care about sacrifice. He cares about obedience, yeah. submission, sensitivity, all the things that made Samuel real. God has withdrawn the kingdom from you, he says. He's going to take it away from you, and he's going to give it to somebody who's better than you are. And he starts to walk away, and Saul, who's a big, strong man, remember, bigger than ever he grabs this old prophet by the hem of his garment and jerks and rips it. That's just not the kind of stuff you want to do to a prophet. <laughs> And Samuel turns around and says, as you have ripped my robe, God will rip your kingdom. And God will rip it out of your hands and give it to another. What does Saul say? Listen to this. He says, okay, okay. I can't talk you out of that. I hear that. That's the word of the Lord. But could we Photoshop it? He does. He says, Let's just walk out in front of all the people. If you'll just shake my hand in front of everybody and pray and let me stand in front of all the people. If you'll just honor my being the king. If you'll just let it be apparent. I believe that the people will believe that perception is reality. And here's an amazing thing. Samuel does it. I've had thousands of college kids say, why does Samuel do that? listen to me. If that's all you want from God, he'll give it to you. Is that all you want? You want, the, you want an apparent kingdom now? You just want to rule and reign right now? God has said, that's all you want. Now is nothing. I'll give you it, but you got nothing. It's just photoshopped. Perception is not reality. There's a true call. There's a true source. And there's a true king. And it's not Saul. The true power is also there. There is a true power. The Spirit of God is the power that fills Samuel's anointed ministry. It's that which anoints David. The true power is not the power of the sword. It's not the power of a government. It's not the power of a nation. And and ultimately, we are citizens of no kingdom here below not ultimately we search for a city above in the ultimate sense that is why all tyrants and dictators fear the Jews and the Christians is because they know in the ultimate analysis if they put if we put up citizenship here below against our citizenship in heaven we will always choose heaven in the ultimate sense the Christians in every nation are always the best citizens. The Christians in every nation are the most loyal. The Christians are the most are the most dedicated, the most patriotic, up to a point. But at that point, we say, I don't serve an eagle. I serve a lamb. And the lamb is the lion. What do we say to these things then? What, what can we say? Satan is a liar. We've said that over and over and over again, but we forget it. He's a liar and the father of all lies. This is one of the great, if you can just get this one truth, it will spare you a great deal of heartache. Where does the source of condemnation come from? Satan comes to you and he says, you're lost. You're undone. You're nasty. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. Don't you see how happy that ought to make you? Because he's a liar and the truth is not in him, that means that all those things are lies. If you could ever just get that, every time Satan lies to you, it just feels great. He says, you're a loser. You said, thank God I'm a winner. He says, you are stupid. You say, oh, wow, I never realized how smart I was till this moment. Satan is a liar. He's a Photoshop deceiver. I just want to say this to you. Okay. I've been married this summer. I will be married 52 years. Amen. It's been, it's been unbroken blessing in my life. And, and Alison's had two or three minutes of happiness in that too. It's been, it's been good for both of us. But here's a funny thing that's happened. A mega church, not here, but a mega church, has just invited me to come and do a weekend retreat with their singles ministry. (laughs) Am I the only one? Don't you think that's funny? I just think that's a riot. That's like asking Ray Charles to lecture on marksmanship. That's just. I have absolutely no clue what to say on a a singles retreat. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. You singles, I've got a word for you. You're exchanging all these emails with other singles somewhere. You're talking to some guy in Provo, Utah, and he's sending you his picture. And he's so handsome and got that wavy hair. And he's holding his checkbook up and you can see the numbers and all the rest. Photoshopped. It's Photoshopped. And you fly out to Utah and meet that guy at the airport, and he looks like Danny DeVito. What's the matter with you? The devil is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's a master deceiver. What we must believe is we must believe God for discernment, for truth. There is a true call. There's a true source. There's a true king. And there's true power. And when we have that, we cannot be deceived by Photoshop, Satanic Deception. We have a call upon us. We have a call upon us. And God will provide. Supernaturally. Some years ago, many years ago, when I was... Still in the United Methodist Church and Global Servants, our ministry, which we have now, was operating outside of the United Methodist Church. I was ordained in the Methodist Church, but I was the president of Global Servants. We had missions and all the things that we were doing, so exciting and so fun. Suddenly, the United Methodist Church decided they wanted hold of it. They didn't want me serving in an independent, spear-filled, charismatic ministry, or just moving around and preaching the gospel. Oh, God forbid. <laughs> And so they informed me that at annual conference, they were going to pass a rule that every independent, every United Methodist minister appointed to an independent ministry that the United Methodist Church had the power to appoint their board members. I met with the district superintendent and the bishop, and I said, you can't, you can't do this. They said, we're going to do it. They said, you cannot stop us. We're going to do it. It's going to be voted on. It will pass. I said, am I, this resolution all about me? They said, well, it's about anybody that might fit this category. So I said, it's all of these ordained Methodist preachers that are working in independent, spirit-filled ministries, that vast host of one. (laughs) They said, well, there's nothing you can do about it. I was in my hotel room the night before that vote. And there was a knock on my door. I opened the door. There's a man standing there. I never saw him before, and I've never seen him since. He said, You're Mark Rutland? I said, Yes, I am. He said, Do not worry about that vote tomorrow. God is in control. Amen. He turned around and walked off down the hall. I never saw him again. I don't know who he was. I don't know why he came to my room. The next morning when I approached the conference out in the parking lot, the district superintendent was waiting for me. He said, Brother Rutland, that vote's off. I said, you're not going to do it now? He said, no, we're not ever going to do it. It's off. I said, why not? He said, I don't have to explain that to you. I just have to tell you it's off. Let me just say something to you. The horse is prepared for battle, but victory is the Lord's. We have a call upon our lives. We have a source beyond this world's governments. We have a true king to lead us. And his kingdom has all the power, all the glory. He is the lion. He is the lion. And he is the lamb. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at DrMarkRutland or visit his website, DrMarkRutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.